But this week we have um, our guest is Stuart Burgess and uh, he's a professor of engineering in Bristol. I'm not I know engineering is a very um, broad category. So um, what is the exact title of your chair, Stuart? And um, what are you doing in your department research wise at the moment? Um, I'm a professor of engineering design, uh, which is quite a broad subject, but, but the subject I love the most. Um, I'm involved in designing the transmission for the Olympic bicycles. Uh, I was involved with that for Tokyo. We just finished the design just when the virus came about. Um, so, so we're ready for that for next year. Uh, but I also work on bio-inspired design, looking at the natural world for inspiration for better engineering technology. Excellent. And um, now you've had a very distinguished career in engineering leading up to the, the present day. And uh, and you've had a prestigious award recently. I think uh, your peers uh, have uh, voted you as the uh, engineer of the year. What, is there a title for that award? And uh, and has it been presented yet? Uh, yeah, that's called the James Clayton Prize 2019. And it was awarded in November uh, last year. Did they award it for any particular reason or is it a cumulative, uh, an accumulative award for all your work in the past? It was particularly for my work on spacecraft and also bio-inspired design, working on technology like microwave vehicles based on the design of dragonflies. Excellent. So um, so you're working in Bristol at the moment, but um, obviously you've been in uh, your field for a, a long time and uh, you worked in the space programs and different things. What are the what are the projects that you feel, you know, you're the most proud of over all your years in uh, engineering? Uh, well, I started off in the space industry. I worked uh, a little bit on the Skylark rocket, a tiny little bit on the Hubble Space Telescope. But most of my work was on Earth observation satellites. And uh, so my biggest project was a big Earth observation satellite called Envisat, which uh, is designed to monitor the environment of the Earth. And I was responsible for designing the solar array deployment mechanism for that two billion dollar satellite. Uh, and that had to work for the whole mission to work. So that was a really challenging project for me and probably the most satisfying. So if that project had failed um, and your um, what is, whatever it was, photoelectric cells or whatever hadn't opened up, then it would just be a wasted trip and a lot of rubbish in space. Uh, yeah, at first I didn't realise that, but I remember the project manager calling me into his office one day and saying, Stuart, did you realise that if your solar array does not function within 90 minutes of getting up into orbit, then the whole mission is completely dead. And I didn't realize that. So he told me to think about that for the rest of the project. And when the rocket was on the launch pad, I was I was really terrified uh, that things may not work completely. But thankfully, they did. So uh, it was a very joyous moment when it actually worked. Yeah, very nerve wracking doing the actual uh, countdown on for those 90 minutes, I've no doubt. Yes. So, um, so Stuart, you worked with the cycling team as well um, for the Olympics. Did that mean that you uh, you got to meet some of our cycling stars? Uh, yes, because the headquarters is up in Manchester, the National uh, Cycling Centre, and there's a velodrome there. So I often go up Um and it's really nice going up because they have a very good canteen. I get to go in the canteen. That's where I meet most of the cyclists. But sometimes I go down on the track as well just to check their bicycles. So uh, that's turned out to be a really uh, exciting and rewarding project as well. And what part of what part did you play in that? I mean, what was your specific job in the um, in the cycle, um, you know, in the cycle effort? Yeah. Over many years, um, the cycle teams have almost perfected the aerodynamic design of the bicycle. But back in 2014, they realized that no one had really been working on the transmission very much. Um, now, normally the transmission wouldn't have very significant losses. But if you've perfected the aerodynamics, then the transmission becomes actually really quite important. And they'd heard that I was an expert in 
chain design and sprocket design. So they came to me uh, to lead the optimization of the transmission design. And we did quite a lot of changes to the sprockets and the chains. Um, I asked them what the goal was and they said it's very simple. They just want the fastest bike in the world. <laughs> and uh, so did you enjoy the uh, was it the Rio Olympics that your uh, your um, efforts were uh, put into practice? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it in a different way than I was anticipating, because when it actually came to the time, uh, a little bit like the spacecraft launch, I felt, again, really terrified because I realized there would be hundreds of millions of people watching the Olympics live. And as is often the case with the Olympics, because many of the parts were finished only a few weeks before the Olympics itself. We weren't 100% sure about the integrity of every new part, and there were a lot of new parts in the chain. And I suddenly realized if the chain breaks on live television, this just would be terrible. So I had this uh, feeling terrified experience again, as all engineers know what the feeling of that is. But thankfully, uh, the chains didn't break. And what was really surprising, uh, the very first uh, run of the bicycles in the Rio Olympics. It was just a, a qualification race by, by the ladies team. And in their very first run, they actually broke the world record. So that just completely astonished me. Uh, so the very beginning was just amazing. Excellent. And did you have any um, uh, special gifts from the uh, Olympic cycling team to reward you for all your efforts? Uh, I've got some signed uh, photographs. They're not here at the moment, but yeah, I've got some nice photographs of the riders winning the Olympic uh, golds, and I've got some signed photos. So that that's nice. Oh, excellent from uh, from there. And you're um, you're well, now all we're all ready for Tokyo, but um, obviously that's going to be uh, delayed a little bit. Yeah, um, I should have told you that I also get. Can you see my? T-shirt. I don't know if it comes out backwards on Zoom, but I'm uh, actually wearing uh, an official Team GB uh, T-shirt. So I also get tracksuits and T-shirts. Excellent. So when you're doing your daily exercise during uh, lockdown, you can go out in your uh, Olympic memorabilia. Exactly. I try not to do cycling in case someone thinks I'm a great cyclist. Uh, so. Now, this interest in um, in design began with Lego. Is that right? Yeah, I think I've been playing with Lego since the age of three or four. Um, we didn't have very much, but I had enough to design little houses and little vehicles. And I, that uh, kept me occupied as a child. Mm. And uh, your education and the lead up to this you know, very, very um, good career in engineering. It wasn't completely straightforward for you, was it, Stuart? It wasn't an easy time at school and at home when you were very small, just starting out. Uh, yeah, I had a difficult childhood. My, I was lived with my mother, single parent family. Uh, most of the time, it was just my mother and myself. We had to move home and move school a lot. Uh, and one of my clearest memories of a child is just moving home continually. And also being in a special needs class in primary school. So schooling was very difficult and, and home was difficult, too. And what about um, uh, friends uh, at school? Were you were you moving area or was it just uh, moving house? It, it, it was moving area. So going to schools in quite different towns. And uh, so it was quite difficult making friends. And also a lot of my friends, I could see they came from richer families, had better clothes. And it was difficult to get in with the in crowd in the schools. Uh, so that 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 was quite noticeable to me. And did that affect you as a, a young child? I mean, can you remember becoming aware that um, that other children were different from you at school? Yeah, I remember one experience at school where at that time, if you were on free school meals because you were involved with social services, um, I would get called to the front of the class in front of the whole class. Everyone would see that I'm the one person in the class who gets free school meals. Um, and life kind of seemed a little bit unfair and 
I, I can appreciate what it's like for people in that situation today. And what about at home? Uh, you lived with your mum and you had to move a lot. Did you have opportunity to study and learn well at home, as, uh, even though school was difficult? Um, studying was was difficult. Uh, I mean, my my mother did a great job uh, in, in the circumstances, um, but it, it was difficult to do homework at home. Just having the same kind of resources that the other children had in school and just not being aware um, of really how to do homework and other things. And so primary school was very difficult to to really keep up. Um, uh, I, I think really I got lost in, in most of the work. And did you have an ambition as a, a young child? Did you were you did you know what you wanted to do? I don't think I did in primary school, but uh, I do remember in secondary school, there came a point halfway through secondary school where I thought if I worked hard, this could be an escape route from having a bit of a difficult life. And uh, and so how old were you when that uh, when that dawned on you? I think I was probably about 14. And one of the things that did help me was some very good teachers uh, in, in my school. Um, who really wanted to encourage some of the poorer students or less able students. And I do remember, uh, even though I had no experience of Christianity, I do remember one, I think it was a physics teacher, who every now and again would mention something to do with the gospel or Christianity in a very subtle way. At the time, it didn't really mean much to me. But looking back, I think it may have had just a little effect on me. So um, in the in your early years, apart from an interest in Lego, um, it was more sort of survival and uh, and getting through school until um, you did your well, until you did your O levels. Yeah, I think survival is probably a good way of uh, explaining that. When it came to O levels, by the way, um, I was actually considered not good enough to take O levels. Um, so at the beginning, I was just taking what were called um, uh, CSEs, uh, Certificate of Sec- Secondary Education. During that time, several of the teachers realised I could probably do O levels. So for most subjects, I was upgraded, although that was a bit difficult doing it at the last minute. Um, but it really motivated me to think I could get some decent qualifications. So I did work very hard during that time. And uh, you did you uh, you got your uh, O levels and then you started work. You didn't go on to do A levels. No, I left home at 16. Uh, I had to do that because my mother needed somehow paying the rent. Uh, so by leaving school at 16, I could uh, help look after my mother and pay for everything. Um, but that something very helpful happened because I actually got a very good engineering apprenticeship in Bath at a company called Stotherton Pitt. And that apprenticeship really set me up in my engineering career. And they they were the ones, I think, who um, who saw your potential and um, encouraged you to uh, do higher qualifications in engineering. Is that right? Yep. After two years uh, of being at Stotherton Pitt, and it was literally two weeks before the beginning of term, uh, someone came into the workshop because I've been doing a practical uh, apprenticeship and they said to me, Stuart, would you like to go to university? And I said, oh, that sounds a good idea. And they said, would you like to go to Brunel? And I didn't have a clue where it was, what it was. I just said yes. Um, and I had two weeks to prepare to go to a place I didn't know. Uh, and that was it was quite a jump in the deep end for me. Had you imagined going to university when you were growing up? Had, had you dreamed of it? Uh, not really. It was something I didn't really know anything about. Um, so, no, I hadn't really given it much thought at all. And what about your mum? What did she think of this? Uh, my mother had quite a few difficulties to cope with. Um, after I got my O-levels, she said she didn't realise I was taking them uh, so often she would only realise what I was doing after the event. But you went off to uh, to Brunel University and um, and that began your your life in engineering. But also that was probably your your 
first real connection with Christians. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, when I arrived at Brunel University, it was quite a strange experience, um, not having a lot of family contact. Um, so I felt quite lonely in in London. But in a way that made me very open to considering making other friends, finding out new things. And so I was very open to going to a Christian Union meeting and someone from my course called Graham he invited me along. And I was just absolutely fascinated with uh, there was a Bible reading. Someone talked about creation and I was very attracted uh, immediately by, by, by what I heard. I was particularly attracted by the character of the Christians. There, there seemed to be something very different about these people. And um, so how did you follow that up? I was very keen to go to the next Christian Union meetings. And very quickly, I was invited to a local um, Brethren Church, Waterloo Road Evangelical Church in Uxbridge. And again, I was very impressed uh, by the people in the church. Uh, they, they, they seemed different to any people that I've met before they'd had. They had a peace and a joy uh, that I'd never seen before. And I noticed that there was a wonderful family uh, unit in the church. Uh, again, it's something I hadn't uh, met before. So I, this to me was uh, the most powerful evidence that the Bible must be true. OK. And uh, so you were uh, you were taken under the wing of this family and you began to grow in your interest in, in Christian things. And when was it that uh, you realized that it wasn't just about knowing about these things that made it, it was important that, that you needed to respond to it in some way? Uh, I was really taken by the preaching, particularly at this local brethren church and everything that the Bible was saying just seemed to make sense right from the beginning that there was a creator, uh, that I was accountable to that creator. That just made complete sense to me. Someone must have created this world and it made sense that if God had created the world, he would leave a testimony in the world, the Bible. Uh, and within, you know, a couple of months, I was beginning to understand the gospel, um, beginning to understand the righteousness of God and uh, and the sinfulness of man, my own sinfulness. I realised I couldn't make excuses from my childhood. I couldn't just say, well, everything's due to my difficult uh, childhood. And really quite quickly, I was um, drawn to uh, putting my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of my sin and finding that peace with God. And um, you had some help from um, one of the families in the church who supported you in those days when you'd just become a, a Christian. Yes, there was a wonderful family there, the Heldon uh, family, the Mr. and Mrs. Heldon. They're now in their 90s. Uh, we contacted them last week because we sent them uh, that book um, about real life stories. Um, and uh, they were just a wonderful family. They uh, hosted me every Sunday. I remember after the first Sunday just being amazed at that family unit uh, with wonderful Sunday roast. And after that meal, I remember writing them a, a long thank you letter, several pages. Um, and the next time I went there, I, I, I spotted it was on the notice board and they made all their own children read it several times, I think. So for gratitude purposes. Yes. Yeah, very good. And uh, so you you began then um, to work uh, in the academic departments uh, now as a Christian engineer. And did that have an impact on the way you viewed your engineering life? I think it did have uh, an impact. Um, if you have a Christian faith, it gives you kind of confidence in creation. God is the one who's designed metals and um, aluminium, other materials. And as with Christian scientists, you have this confidence in, in what you're doing. Uh, also, you have peace of mind if things go wrong. So I've, I found my Christian faith a great help. 
in engineering, what's particularly important is to be able to invent and, and innovate. And knowing that we're made in God's image, God is a great creator and innovator. And so I find that inspiring as well. And did you have um, any opposition um, as a Christian at work or did you find that your colleagues were supportive? Uh, well, I'm a little bit of an outspoken person when it comes to creation and intelligent design. Interestingly, I have found support from my engineering colleagues, even my non-Christian engineering colleagues, because engineers realize that design does not happen by chance. Um, uh, some of my friends who are biologists and physicists, I think they've had more opposition than, than, than I have because of the subject areas. So being an engineer and understanding design, you think makes it easier for you to um, find evidence for a creator in the world around you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, especially since today we're now studying design in biological systems. And what we're finding is that biological systems are more complex than engineering systems. Just to give you one example, um, I was involved in uh, designing the wiring system on spacecraft. And on a very large spacecraft, you might have 30 kilometers of electrical wiring, which is complicated enough. But if you take, for example, the human body, we have 150,000 kilometers of nervous wiring in our, in our body. It's vastly more complicated than the most complex spacecraft that humans design. And everyone knows a spacecraft cannot be designed by chance. It needs uh, an intelligent design team to plan and design everything. And so the conclusion is clear. Uh, the human body and other parts of the natural world must be designed. And uh, as well as the, um, the the nervous system and the other things, you've written a number of books on on this. When did you get interested in in publishing and uh, things like that about this subject? Yeah, my first book I uh, published was in the year 2000 uh, and I was in my 30s uh, at that time when I wrote uh, when I first wrote Hallmarks of Design. I showed it to some of my colleagues and my colleagues said, well, that's controversial. Uh, you really want to wait till you retired before publishing that. And I realized I'd have to wait 30 years. So I decided to just go straight ahead and publish it anyway. And did it have a reaction? Did you get a reaction to it? Uh, I wasn't really thinking about whether there would be a reaction, but there was a huge reaction. Uh, it did step on a lot of people's toes. Um, there's a very strong atheistic bias in academia. And so atheists were really quite angry when my book came out. And have you been involved in any discussions and debates directly with them? Or has your um, involvement mainly been uh, in explaining the, the beauty of the design in nature? It's mainly explaining. But um, people like Richard Dawkins have written um, about myself and, and Andy McIntosh. Um, and so there have been some exchanges. Right. OK. So that's uh, that's an ongoing thing at the moment. And are you involved in uh, any work uh, promoting that sort of um, the research that you do in that area? Uh, well, in fact, um, I mean, I've published about 180 scientific papers on the science of design in engineering and in biology. And I've discovered uh, what we call some irreducible mechanisms in the natural world. Uh, these are mechanisms that cannot just evolve step by step. Lots of parts are needed simultaneously for the system to work. And I've identified some of these in the natural world, like the knee joints, the, the way the ligaments work in a, in a special mechanism, and also the wing of a dragonfly and also the wing of birds. And I've actually published these in the secular press. Uh, so there is some overlap between my secular work and my interest in intelligent design. Excellent. And um, you're you're now settled in Bristol and you are you're married and you've got uh, a family. Uh, that's correct. Um, my wife, Jocelyn, and we have five children. And are you, uh, what about your Christian life? Are you involved in a church locally? Yes, I'm a member of Setland Evangelical Church. Uh, I often preach there. I'm preaching tomorrow on Romans. Uh, 10. 
Um, so yeah, I'm involved with that and I do quite a lot of creation speaking as well. Excellent. And you became a Christian when you were in your early twenties. And, um, how has, how has your faith, um, developed over the years, would you say? Has it been easy, getting easier to be a Christian in the academic sphere or, um, do you think it's harder now than it was when you began? Uh, I think it's gradually getting harder. Um, but of course, today we have other issues to do with the family unit. Uh, so that I, I'm noticing a similar kind of pressure in other areas of society. So, yeah, I think life is getting a little bit more difficult for Christians in all kinds of uh, spheres of work. Excellent. Now, are you in contact still with your because um, you're you're part of a uh, you had a, a number of brothers and sisters and um, you've got a family connection still with them? Yeah, I keep in touch because I have. Um, well, I had four siblings. One's died. So it's now three, three siblings. And yeah, I keep in touch with them. And are any of them believers or are you able to share your faith with, with them? Uh, no, they're not. Uh, but I have shared my faith um i've got two sisters one brother and uh, the two sisters have a little bit of an interest so i'm still working on them oh, excellent and is your mum still alive yeah she lives in north wales and uh yeah i keep in touch with her she'll probably join the church service tomorrow morning by uh zoom or skype and what does she make of your the trajectory of your life um, I think she's quite surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Very good. Well, um, we're going to have time for you to take questions. And I mean, we've touched on a number of, uh, of subjects uh, there, particularly sort of perhaps the creation and the, the design ideas. So I'm sure that um, you'll be able to hang around and a little bit later on, we'll be able to take some questions. Um, I think we're going to put up on the screen the um, the, the numbers that you have to uh, contact to uh, to get your um, your things through. You can send your questions via text uh, to that number or you can do it on um, on Slido uh, there. So uh, that's great. Well, thanks very much. Student, uh, Stuart, for sharing your uh, your story and uh, giving us an insight into some uh, exciting work that, that you've done. I'm going to uh, hand over to Michael Ott. Michael is one of the Association of uh, Evangelists, and um, he's going to be sharing a little bit. If you can remember back to the very beginning of our time together, he we read a, a reading from John's Gospel. And he's going to be talking to us a little bit from that. So I'll hand over to Michael. Well, thank you so much, Carl. And wasn't that fascinating? Thank you, Stuart, for, for sharing with us. Um, I just uh, loved so much of that. I loved him talking about cycling because I am a keen cyclist. I'm not sure I go fast as the uh, Olympic cyclists. I'm not sure the components on my bike were necessarily designed by him. Uh, but uh, but it was fascinating to to hear that. And what an amazing story, considering that Stuart's um, left school, almost didn't do his O-levels. And uh, look where he is and has become now. So what an amazing story. But it was also personally very encouraging to hear how his first interaction with the Christian faith was was at university at Brunel. Um, personally, one of the joys of my life is speaking at events often organised by university uh, Christian unions, uh, possibly like the ones that Stuart went to uh, those years ago. And it's a wonderful place to engage with many of the questions that people have, many of the questions that people bring to the Christian faith and start to ask as they encounter Christians, maybe for the first time in that kind of environment. And one of the questions that often comes up is, is basically a very critical and core question. And that's basically, how do we know God exists? I mean, what evidence is there to believe that? Is this just wishful thinking? Is this some psychological crutch or is this actually true? And so that question, of course, there are many things that we could say. There are many, you might say, clues um, to God's existence. Uh, we could talk about the clue uh, of the universe's existence at all. The fact that we are here. Where did we come from? Why are we here? It's interesting when scientists first started theorizing about the beginning of the universe uh, the objection to that theory came mostly from atheists, because if the universe had a beginning, what caused it to begin? Uh, what was responsible for everything? Does everything come from nothing or does it come from something? 
we could talk, of course, about the clue of the fine tuning of our universe. Physicists agree that our universe is finely tuned in incredible ways so that life can exist here on planet Earth. And the chances of that being the case are almost infinitesimally small. Um, It's not just like me winning the lottery uh, this week. Um, Last week, we heard about how George Muller entered the lottery to find out whether he could become a missionary. Don't worry, I haven't tried it out this week. Uh, But imagine if I entered the lottery and I won the jackpot. And then next week I enter and I win it again. And then I win it again the week after and so on. Do you think anyone is going to say, well, these things just happen? It's just a chance. Well, do you think someone's going to start saying there's something sus about that? These things shouldn't happen. Well, when we're talking about the fine tuning of the universe, we're talking about something which is even more unlikely than these things. Did that just happen or was there something behind it or rather someone behind it? Of course, we could talk about the clue of design. And Stuart has talked a little bit about that tonight. And you might want to ask him more questions uh, at the end about his work in that area. It's a fascinating area. What an incredible statistic. 30 kilometers of wiring on a spacecraft, 150,000 kilometers of nervous wiring in the human body. And we say that just happened by chance or is there design behind it? We could talk about the clue of morality, couldn't we? The fact that we live in a world where we agree that there are certain things such as right and wrong. There is this demand for justice. We've seen that massively in the news, haven't we, over the last week? But why do we demand justice and why do we think that there is a right and a wrong? If there's a moral law, shouldn't there be a moral lawgiver that gave us those laws in the first place? We might talk about the clue of religion that points towards God. Now, clearly, religions have very different ideas about who God is, and they have very different concepts of how you get to God. But isn't it interesting that there's never been a culture anywhere in the world that has been discovered that has been completely atheistic? They tried to do things like that in the Soviet Union, but they failed. There seems to be this inbuilt sense in all human beings that there is something more than the material world. There is something more than the physical that we can see and touch. There's something more beyond. And we search for it in different ways. But those are all clues, you might say. The clue of the universe, fine tuning, design and so on. But is there something, if you excuse my pun, that's more conclusive? Is there something that's more obvious towards God's existence? A friend of mine, uh, when he went to university um, at Bristol, uh, told me about when he turned up in the halls of residence on his first day in his first year. And as you do as a student, you nervously start getting to know the people around you in your hall of residence. And eventually uh, he met most of the people in his hall. But he hadn't met uh, the person who lived a few doors down in room 32D. Uh, At first, he thought maybe the room was empty, but after a while, he started to hear uh, the strange sound of music coming uh, from under the door late at night. So he thought, well, maybe someone's there. So he knocked on the door, but no one responded. And then he started to hear um, other strange sounds coming out of this room. He could smell the smell of the fish coming out at certain times of the day and so on. And all of these clues pointed towards the fact that there was someone indeed inside 32D. The only problem was no one had ever met the residents of 32D. He never seemed to come in or go out. He was this mystery character that got named by all the other students 32D. You see, the only way you could discover who was inside the room is if the person inside the room was to come out and show himself to everyone else. Until that happened, you would be guessing, wouldn't you, about who was behind the door. Now, we might have clues that point us towards the fact that there is a God behind this universe. But how would we know about that God? ourselves? How would we know anything conclusively about him? Well, the incredible claim of the Christian message is this, that God has shown himself. He has revealed himself. He hasn't left us in the dark guessing at what he might be like, but he has made himself known. That's why Rebecca read to us this passage from the beginning of John's account of the life of Jesus earlier on uh, in our time together. Because John introduces his book on the life of Jesus by speaking on a cosmic level about the God who is behind the universe. He talks about this God as the word, the logos, the reason behind the universe. He's the source of life and light and all things were made by him. And there isn't anything that was made that wasn't made by him. This is an incredible picture of this incredibly powerful and cosmic God. And yet this is the amazing thing that he says in verse 14. He says this, the word, this word who created the universe and is the source of life and light. This word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, what John is saying is this. The God of creation, the God who made everything, hasn't left us in the dark, but he's stepped into this world and revealed himself in person in Jesus. And the rest of John's gospel unpacks what that looks like. You see, John is going to go on to show that we can be convinced that Jesus reveals God to us through what Jesus says and what Jesus does. Again and again, Jesus says the kind of things that only God could say. He claims to be able to forgive sins. He claims to be the judge of history. He claims to be the one who predated even Abraham, a man who had lived and died 2000 years before. He claimed to accept worship. And he claimed the very name that God had revealed himself by in the Old Testament, the I am of himself. And that claim was so outrageously clear that many of the Jews who heard him say that thought he was blaspheming. They knew what he was claiming. But anyone could make those kind of claims, couldn't they? I could make those claims today. I could claim to forgive sins. I could claim to be uh, the creator of the universe. But you wouldn't believe me. Why? Because they would be words, mere words. But John also shows us in this incredible book that Jesus didn't just make these stupendous claims, but then he backed up those claims by the things that he was able to do. He had unique authority, authority over nature. He could calm a storm and walk on water. He had authority over sickness. He was able to set people's free from its debilitating grip. He had authority over the power of evil, liberating people from its power and its destructiveness. But ultimately, we see he has power over death itself, as he not only goes through death, but he breaks through it, coming back from the cold, showing that he had conquered death itself. You see, the claim that John is making is this. God hasn't left us in the dark about who he is, but he's revealed himself and he's revealed himself clearly in the person of Jesus. So when people say to me, I don't believe in God or I'm not sure there's a God out there. The first question I often want to ask is, what do you make of Jesus? What did you make of your investigation into the evidence of Jesus? For if we're going to dismiss God without looking at Jesus, I suggest that's a big mistake. In fact, we heard about Richard Dawkins just briefly earlier. You may want to ask Stuart about his encounters with him. But it's interesting because in a whole book looking at why Richard Dawkins doesn't believe in God, there's merely about three pages interacting with the person of Jesus and nothing really on the biggest claims of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. See, you can't dismiss God before you've dismissed Jesus. But you might say, well, if the evidence is so compelling, if God has made himself so clearly known, why is it that so many people don't believe? Why is it that we seem to find that there are plenty of people, intelligent people included, who dismiss all this? Is it because it's not as conclusive? Is it because it's not true? Well, just let me turn over to the next page in John John's Gospel, John chapter three, because I think we actually see the answer here. Uh, What we read is this in John chapter three and verse 19. We read this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. In other words, what John is saying is this. The word who is the light, Jesus, who is the light of the world, has come into the world. And people rejected Jesus, not because they weren't convinced of what he had said or did, but because in being the light of the world, Jesus shows up the darkness of our world. And not just the darkness that's out there that we see on our news screens every day, but also more personally, the darkness in here. And that's uncomfortable, isn't it? When the dark areas of our lives are shown up by the light and the beauty of Jesus. Because as we start to look at the person of Jesus, we see how in comparison to him, all of us fall so far short. This was brought home to me a while back in a more amusing way. When I was going through the uh, airport security at Southampton Airport, I was flying up to Edinburgh for a few meetings. I wasn't staying long. And so I only had hand luggage, a backpack to take with me. And I got to the security part of the airport. I went through the scanner. It didn't go off. And I waited for my bag to come through um, on the conveyor belt. And I waited for it to come through. But when it did, one of the people on the other side said, excuse me, sir, we're going to have to search your bag. I was convinced of my uh, innocence. And so uh, she took the bag and placed it on a table. 
I thought she was just going to have a quick look in the top, but she started to take every single item out of my bag and place it on this table in view of everyone passing by. The first item out of my bag was my Bible, which uh, I was tempted to feel a little bit self-righteous at. Until she took out the second item, which was the autobiography of Simon Cowell, the X Factor judge. I wasn't so proud of that. Uh, Don't ask me what it was doing in my bag. And then she took out my notebook and various other pieces of paper, my packed lunch and so on. About halfway down my bag, I suddenly thought to myself, you know what? I can't remember what's at the bottom of my bag. Because my bag's a bit like a black hole. Things go in that never come out. And just as I'm thinking that, she pulls out this banana peel that's been in there for I don't know how long. And she places it very carefully on the table. Then there's an apple core, a sock, a pair of my underpants and a a, a packet of sandwiches that uh, had been, I think, in there for, for several weeks. And eventually half of Bournemouth Beach was emptied out onto the table. And all the time people are walking by, looking at the table and looking at me and laughing their heads off. And all the time I'm just wishing that the ground would metaphorically open up and swallow me alive. See, having all of these people watching the contents of my bag out on display was utterly embarrassing. But as I reflected on that incident later, I thought, but what if that was to happen to my life? What if a spotlight was shot into my life to reveal all of the areas of my life, the dark recesses that people don't see and the parts that I wouldn't even want people to see and the parts that I don't even want to remember myself? How would I feel? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? You see, when the light shines in the darkness, it shows up the stuff that's wrong. And when Jesus, as the light of the world, comes in, it shows up the stuff in our lives that's wrong as well. And that can be uncomfortable. So part of us wants to resist it, hide away from that kind of light. I was interested a while back, Stephen Hawking, the famous atheist, he died just a a few years ago now, had made this claim that religion and Christianity in particular was just for those who are afraid of the dark. John Lennox, the uh, Christian professor of mathematics who we had on this show just a few weeks ago, was asked to respond to such a claim uh, in one of the national newspapers of our country. Uh, What would you say, John Lennox, to someone who says that Christianity is just for those who are afraid of the dark? And John, quick as a flash, came back and said, yes, but atheism is for those who are afraid of the light. You see, if you're going to say Christianity is just a psychological crutch because people can't face up to the problem of there being nothing beyond death. Could you also say that atheism is a psychological crutch for those who don't like to face up to the fact that all is not well in our lives? But can I say, actually, there's a good reason why we should. And actually, the answer to that problem is is just a couple of verses earlier in John chapter three. You see, we've had this incredible verse where we're told that God loves the world. And then we read this. We read, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As one person put it, God didn't come to rub it in. He came to rub it out. Jesus' purpose in coming into this world was not simply to illuminate the darkness, but also to eradicate the darkness. That he would go to a cross and on the cross take upon himself all of the wrong of your life and my life. All of the things that we're ashamed of. All of the things that we have forgotten about and the things that we wish we could forget about. All of our sin, all of our wrong was taken by him so that it could be taken away. So that we could stand before this God unashamed. Not because we are righteous and good in our own eyes, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we don't need to hide away from this God. Despite the fact there are things in our lives that are wrong, we can come to him because the very one who shows up the problem also offers us the solution. The true light can shed his light into our life and bring light where there is darkness. And what is the purpose? Not simply that we might know that God exists, but that we might know him personally. John again says in chapter one that we're brought into a relationship. We're invited to be received into this family. Stuart talks about church as being an experience of family. And that is what a church in its best uh, understanding really is. It's a family of those who've come to experience the love and the forgiveness of God. And I wonder whether you've ever experienced that yourself. Maybe you're listening tonight and you're saying, well, actually, I'm not convinced at all. I'm still skeptical. Well, if you are, ask your questions. 
uh, in just a few moments time. We'd love to hear them. But if you are going to be sceptical, let me throw that challenge back again. Before you dismiss this, what are you going to make of Jesus? Have you really looked at the evidence for him, for his life, his death and his resurrection? Do look at that. We'd love to send you a, a part of the Bible, a New Testament, so you can read through John's Gospel, indeed other parts of the Bible too, and investigate for yourself. Just get in touch. We'll tell you how at the end to do that. Maybe you want to find out more about this. Again, we'd love to be in touch and explain more about how you can take these things further. But maybe you want to say tonight, actually, I would love to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. I don't want to hide away, but I want him to get rid of the darkness in my life. I want to be able to become part of this family. I want to experience this relationship that he offers freely to us. I don't just want to know about him, but I want to know him personally for myself. And if that's you, the wonderful offer tonight is that you can have that. John says to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Will you receive the forgiveness and the friendship of God in Jesus? Well, if you'd like to do that, I'd just like to finish before we go to questions with just a short prayer, a prayer that you might want to just echo wherever you're watching from tonight or in the days to come. If you're watching the video on YouTube later, a prayer that you could echo as a way of saying to this God, he's not only revealed himself to us, but loves us and gave himself for us. Yes, I want to receive this life that you offer. And if you'd like to do that, why not just echo these words now as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made yourself known. Thank you that I can know you because you've revealed yourself in Jesus. Thank you that even though you show up the things in my life that are wrong, you came not to condemn, but to forgive. God, I'm sorry for the stuff in my life that is wrong, that separates me from you and has hurt others and hurt you. Please forgive me and help me to receive now your friendship and your love and to live in relationship with you and as part of your family from this day onwards. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And if you did pray that tonight, let me just say before I hand back to Carl that we'd love to get in touch with you. Um, do get in touch and um, we'd love to send you a little booklet that just explains about how to start out um, in this wonderful adventure, which is a relationship with God in Christ. And if you uh, email us your postal details, we'll be in touch and we'll send that through in the New Testament as well. If you'd like, I'll hand back now. Great. Thanks very much, uh, Michael. So many things to think about this evening, both with what Stuart said and uh, then what Michael said. Uh, then we've got some time for questions uh, now. So I think um, we'll put up on the screen again the information and um, and then I'll hand over to Janice. And uh, the questions may be for Michael or for um, or for Stuart. And um, we've got about 15 minutes or so to uh, to go through those. So if you haven't sent your questions in, then uh, rush to do that. But I'll hand over to Janice and uh, she'll be able to lead us through the question time. Over to you, Janice. Thank you, um, Stuart, a first question from a first year mechanical engineering student who wants to know, how did you make the transition from all level maths and physics to university level maths and physics? OK, good question. Um, I did an ordinary national national certificate at night school when my colleagues were, were doing their A-levels. Uh, so I was very much behind when I was 18. Now it wouldn't be possible. You wouldn't be allowed to go to do a degree based on just doing night school at the age of 17 and 18. When I got to university, um, I almost sunk during the first year because I didn't understand any of the maths and some of the physics was also difficult. But I think some of the difficulties I had in my childhood gave me a resilience to get through that first year. So the first year was very, very tough. Uh, for me. So the transition was really catching up in my first year of university, which was hard work. A um, couple of questions on special design. Can you give some specific evidence for special design? And is there one specific piece of evidence that convinced you that there was a designer? Take your time on this one. <laughs> as much detail as you want. We're fascinated. <laughs> Um, I gave you the example of wiring in the human body. I think that that's an amazing design. It's, it's so difficult to know where to start. 
Um, I could talk about the plumbing of the heart and the blood circulation system, the fact that the heart is a double pump, there's a low pressure system to the lungs, a high pressure system to the body, the organs are wired in parallel. That kind of plumbing, engineers realize, has to be planned and got right, right from the beginning. I mentioned the amazing mechanism in the knee joint with this uh, crossed ligaments. Uh, that's a wonderful design. But then there's also beauty in creation. And in, in my book, Hallmarks of Design, I talk about the beauty of birdsong and the beauty of feathers. Peacock feathers are just astounding. I think Roger mentioned those earlier. Um, Colored tail feathers are just amazing. They have what are called photonic crystals, which is like precision engineering design where you have uh, these regularly spaced voids in this material comparable with the wavelength of colored light. And it gives a spectacular display of color in the peacock uh, feather. So I think the peacock would be one of my favorite examples. The human body is just full of amazing design. If uh, some people ask me, well, what's the most powerful evidence of design in the whole of creation? I think one of the most powerful evidences would be the human voice, the ability of humans to sing with great beauty, because that's what I call over design uh, just to survive. If we were just animals just here to, to survive, we wouldn't have this ability to sing in a beautiful way. And yet that's exactly what you'd expect if God had created us to be beings, to know him and to worship him. So conversely, the evidence for evolution, doesn't it just show that we've evolved and there's nothing particular special about us? Are we just products of evolution? How would you answer somebody who asked you that? OK, that's quite a big question. Um, one thing I would start with, um, which kind of surprises a lot of people, I've been in academia uh, for about 30 years and I've been really surprised how my colleagues, particularly in the biology department, are not confident in the theory, theory of evolution. Uh, the, the media give this impression that scientists just uh, reject intelligent design and they all accept evolution. Many scientists are very sympathetic to intelligent design. Many scientists can see the lack of evidence for the theory of evolution. There's a lot of evidence for for adaptation, uh, like Darwin's finches, for example, of adaptation. But adaptation is not evolution. And uh, if just to give one particular example, uh, there is this theory of abiogenesis that supposedly uh, explains how life could just jump from a chemical soup to the first life. But every scientist knows that there is no evidence that that has ever happened in the past. And I've spoken about that with my professorial colleagues and every professor I've spoken to has said, yeah, there's no evidence that life could just come from a chemical soup. And if it could never start in the first place, then the whole theory of evolution is wrong. So it, it's, a, it's a theory where scientists are still looking for evidence. Janice, can I just chip in? One thing on that from a more philosophical level, I'm not going to jump in on the, the science, Stuart will be much better qualified, but just to say, in many ways, the questioner draws out the implication, which is, yeah, if we are just the products of evolution, why are we special? And yet, actually, we do live in a world where we assume that people do have intrinsic value. In fact, it's interesting if you look at the way people have responded to coronavirus, we're not willing just to say, well, the strong can survive and the weak can die. <laughs> Actually, we live in a world that says weak people matter, vulnerable people matter. Now, that's completely inconsistent <laughs> with the theory of evolution, if that's all we have to account for who we are. Um, but it's very consistent with a Christian view that says we're created with value and dignity in the image of God and we're special. So it's worth thinking about what are the implications of these views and certainly, yes, if that's all we are, then we aren't. But I don't think any of us really feel that. And we certainly don't live as if that was the case. Um, you've had a few um, issues with uh, Richard Dawkins. And I think I heard you say once that he described you as a very dangerous person. <laughs> Why do you think the academic world is so against Christians like you? 
Well, first of all, uh, it's, I think it's a minority of scientists who are really atheists. I think most scientists are agnostics. Um, but of course, Richard Dawkins obviously feels very threatened. And people have made the point that if he was really confident in atheism, then why does he get so agitated by scientists who declare a faith uh, in intelligent design? And I think that that really tells you something that that defensiveness um, tells and it illustrates the point I was making, that there is this lack of confidence that the world could really come about just by itself. We hear a lot that Christianity and science are actually in conflict. Did, did this trouble you when you were considering the claims of Christ for yourself? Actually, that never was a problem for me. And I think it is a myth that, uh, that there's a conflict between science and the Bible. If you look at the history of science um, in the early days, the greatest scientists were very strong Bible believers. And, and not just the early days, but if in the last century you had people like James Clark Maxwell, Lord Calvin, Michael Faraday, Ambrose Fleming. These are some of the greatest scientists that ever lived. Uh, those four, by the way, came after Charles Darwin and they had a very strong faith in the Bible. So there is this myth uh, that's going around today that there's a conflict between science and the Bible. Um, And as I was becoming a Christian, I never saw that conflict. Are there any particular areas of science that atheists use to make Christians look like fools? Uh, Interesting uh, question. Yeah, OK. I guess one area that they try to use are things like the age of the Earth. Um, to them, it seems just completely ridiculous that uh, Christians believe the Earth could just be a few thousand years old. But when you look into these things, it's not such a ridiculous thing. And by the way, before 1800, uh, the whole of society, scientists, politicians believed what the Bible said about the history of the world. They believed in a global flood and they believed in in a young earth. It's only in relatively recent times that people mock the idea of a global flood and a young earth. But there is actually some quite strong evidence uh, in in a young earth. Just to give one example, um, if you look at the history of human technology, human technology only goes back a few thousand years. If you look at the history of pottery or tooling or horse riding or farming, those kinds of technologies, they they only go back a few thousand years. And that's a great mystery to the secular world, but not a surprise if you're a Christian and you believe in biblical history. Um, A couple of related questions. If God designed the human body, why does it seem to go wrong so often and in so many ways? And if God's such a good designer, why does he allow suffering? Uh, yeah, that's a very, very reasonable question and a reasonable objection. Uh, one way to start answering that is that uh, in the Garden of Eden, before uh, Adam and Eve fell and sinned, uh, creation was perfect. So God never intended, uh, you know, it, it wasn't his plan for us to be suffering uh, to, to, to suffer disease and death. Um, the initial creation was perfect with no suffering, no disease, no arthritis. But sadly, the, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve sinned and following their sin and rebellion, the earth was uh, cursed. And part of that curse was aging, getting old, uh, disease. And so, yeah, we do have things going wrong, but but there is a theological origin to that, the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that you can look forward to paradise restored in heaven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Stuart. Have you studied the design of the flight of bats? And if not, would you please do so and write a book on it? It would be a great blessing to every reader. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds like another great project. Bats are just uh, astounding, uh, not just the way they fly, but the echolocation the way they can avoid objects so fast. I think that that would be a wonderful project. 
Is the Earth flat? It's becoming a very popular theory these days, so perhaps you'll just clear things up. <laughs> um, I'm pretty confident it's not flat because the satellites I designed, I put them up <laughs> in the sky going in one direction and I noticed them coming round the other <laughs> direction. And that could only happen if the Earth is round. So you can be very confident the Earth is round. <laughs> what do you think about the world's desire to colonise Mars? Should we as Christians before or against space travel? Um, colonising Mars, uh, as many of my colleagues would, would agree, uh, is just not uh, practical. Mars has a very thin atmosphere compared to ours and n not an atmosphere conducive to life and the ground's not conducive to life. Um, it's good for certain companies that work in the space industry, but uh, it's just not suitable for life. So uh, that's really not a good idea uh, at all. And I think it's in Psalm 115 where it says, the earth the Lord has given to the children of men, but the heavens belong to the Lord. So I think it's good to follow that, that uh, teaching. You're clearly very gifted as a designer. Do you think designing bicycle chains is the best use of your talents? <laughs> uh, one thing I would say about that is, because uh, some people say, what's the point of designing a chain just for these couple of races in the Olympics? What I should explain is that um, that kind of technology often spills off to help other parts of society, in fact, our chains have already been used to make better chains in industry, which is saving huge amounts of energy and is benefiting the environment. So I wouldn't want to design a chain just for the Olympics. Um, but when you do it for that kind of elite activities, there are often lots of follow on uh, benefits. So it's part of being a good steward of creation. Have you studied the hummingbird? And how it's the only bird that flies backwards? Um, a little bit because there's some similarity with the dragonfly. I've mostly studied dragonfly flight and there is a similarity in that uh, insects like dragonflies, not only do they flap their wings, but they twist their wings. And the same happens with hummingbirds. They flap and twist their wings, which is a, a, an amazing thing. And you get these vortices uh, so it is something I'm interested in. The difference with insects is that insects um, have this elastic resonance, if you're interested in the, the technicalities. But hummingbirds combine just immense beauty and engineering excellence. So that's what makes them wonderful for me. You might have touched on this already in the previous question. What's the biggest myth created by evolutionists that's so believed by millions uh, perhaps the biggest one is that human beings have come from apes, and I think it's a very dangerous uh, myth. Interestingly, every 10 years you get these headlines in the newspapers, we've just found the missing link. And you think, why are they saying that if they said that 10 years ago and 10 years before then and 10 years before then? The missing link is missing today as much as it always has been. And just uh, we're running out of uh, time now. I've just lost the question I was going to ask you. Right. Um, it's all very well believing everything that you said tonight. But does it really matter what one believes? Um, it does because eternity is at stake and eternity is a long time. But even in this life, um, I have found having the wisdom of scripture, the wisdom of Proverbs and other parts of scripture, it's had an immense effect on my life, but the main thing is our eternal destiny. So I would urge uh, anyone who's seeking to continue seeking with great urgency because it's the most important thing in life. Thank you very much, Stuart. And, uh, I think we're out of time now, so I'll go back to Carl. Great. Thanks very much, Stuart and uh, Michael and Janice for fielding those questions. And, uh, and if you've got uh, interest in uh, some of the things which Stuart's talked about, remember his books. Um, I think he's got some um, YouTube um, lectures as well, and we may be putting up some details of, of those. 
Um, and not only those things, remember um, the talk that Michael gave. And if you are interested in following that up, if you think, well, um, you'd like to uh, to look into the spiritual side of things and explore um, knowing God for yourself and getting to know the designer, then uh, contact us on the Zoom address at the bottom of that of the screen there. And we'll send you the New Testament and um, the other things which Michael spoke about. Next week, we're going to do another meeting. Um, Jeremy Marshall will be our speaker. And he's got an interesting story to tell um, about um, his situation with um, the, the cancer and the treatment uh, and coping with that. So uh, hopefully you'll be able to come and join us for that. But a really big thank you to all of you for coming and especially to Professor Burgess for spending his time and answering our questions and to Michael for sharing with us as well. Good night, everyone, and God bless you.